Hello and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the Library and Archives dedicated to advancing the conversation on multilateralism. In this episode, we welcome three young researchers from the Graduate Institute in Geneva to talk about their applied research project on futures of multilateralism. The UN office at Geneva and the Graduate Institute are neighbors, and we collaborate in several knowledge and research domains. Together with the FAB, the Institute's Innovation Lab, the Library and Archives submitted a research project on futures of multilateralism. The students used a two-by-two two scenarios tool to produce possible future scenarios. We hope you enjoy listening, as Francesco Pisano, Director of the Library and Archives, and Simfora, Karim, and Sahini first outline what multilateralism may look like in the following three scenarios. A world of stable and cooperative geopolitics and open access technology, a world of volatile geopolitics and open access technology, and a world of volatile geopolitics and closed access technology. They then move on to a stimulating discussion on what they find emerges from their research. Welcome to Labyrinth Archives. Welcome to our studio. I suggest we go around the table. You can introduce yourself to our audience. Hello, everyone. I'm Simfora Bangasimbo, a master's student at the Graduate Institute. Uh, with my specialization in human rights and humanitarianism. I live in the U.S., but I am Congolese. I studied political science and international affairs for my undergrad, and I thought international development and relations will be a great place to go for my master's. Thank you for having us. Um, I'm Sohini Chakrabarti. I'm also doing the same master's program as Sumfora, but my specialization is gender, race, and diversity. I live in New Delhi. I'm from New Delhi, but I'm originally Bengali from Calcutta. I have a background in development at the grassroots pertaining to education and access to quality education, and also several years of experience in intersectional feminist advocacy and activism work. And my interest really lies in trying to build or work on an understanding, inclusive and critical pedagogies. Hello, uh, my name is Karim Ashi. I'm from Lebanon originally, so I'm doing my master's here at the Geneva Graduate Institute in International and Development Studies. My concentration mostly focuses on conflict, peace, and security. So my background is also in political science and international affairs. And throughout my academic career, I've been working with international organizations, including the UN and other research centers, focusing on conflict resolution and peace building. So thank you for having us. Well, it's a pleasure to have the three of you. This is also our first podcast with three guests, so I'm very excited about this. Mm -hmm. So let's get started. I would like to offer this reflection by the UN Secretary General. He said, and I'm quoting, the choices we make or fail to make today could result in breakdown or a breakthrough to a greener, better, safer future. First, I would like to maybe ask you to clarify to our audience what the research question was so that we're clear from the outset about it. Okay, first of all, I will start with the objective. The objective of their research is to shift the focus from the future of multilateralism as we know it to the multilateralism of the future because of transformation of our collective vision of a better world. This research matters because it helps us clarify possible futures of multilateralism and what is required to achieve them in the next 30 years. Thus, there are three research questions that my team and I, we focused on in our research project. The first question is, what might the futures of the world look like in 30 years or so? The second question is, what types of multilateral cooperation underpin each scenario? 
And finally, which we'll discuss at the end of the podcast, what transformations are required to create paths towards an international order anchored in justice, equality, and sustainability? All right. Of course, this being research, you must have sort of uh, designed a, a methodology. Uh, I think it, this is the right place to share the methodology now. Yeah. First, of course, we did desk research. Had to really pick which definition of multilateralism we wanted to focus on because different researchers have their own definition. So we did a lot of brainstorming, a lot of desk research, a lot of literature review to find the definition that we were looking for, the one we thought we agreed with. After that, we did a focus group with students at the Graduate Institute to really hear about like what they think matters for the future, what kind of trends they're seeing now will affect what happens in the future. When we finished that, we then had the three trends that we focused on, which was climate change, uh, geopolitical shifts, and technological advancements. Then when we had the trends, we continued to do more desk research to really understand the trends. When we came to scenario building, we had to kind of come up with a, or find a way to create these scenarios. Our professor suggested that we use the two-by-two two scenario tool that was developed by SRI International, which helped us choose two um, complex interconnected drivers of change and identify the critical uncertainties of those trends. So then we could initially use those two uncertainties to come up with uh, different scenarios. Okay, so you talked about how you had to select the definition of multilateralism so that we sort of agreed before on what is multilateralism to the effect of this research. So do you want to share that with the audience? What is the definition you picked? I think we wanted to focus on a forward-looking definition where there was space and scope to really think about what we want the world to look like. So when we think about multilateralism, we think of it as a system of cooperation among, say, three or more parties, which is at least somewhat rooted in a rules-based institutional regime, where there is some degree of shared goals and values. And there's also a respect and inclusivity of everyone's interests. So that's kind of system that we're looking at to consider multilateral cooperation. Perfect. So I suggest we start diving in then. As a premise to that... It is clear that uh, we have a global order today in the world that is the result of, you know, seven, almost eight years of international cooperation. And that we have come to a moment in the history of international relations where the size of global problems is really going into crisis format. Actually, some observers begin to talk about a mega challenge in front of us that is basically the combination of increasing inequalities, the severe crisis that we are, we are experiencing, several conflicts returning to you know, the front of the international scene. And that, combined with climate change, results in this kind of mega challenge for the international order. So it is a time to reflect. And I think has never been more urgency in the need to reflect about what is the multilateralism we need with respect to this mega challenge in front of us. So let's dive in and let's see. You came up with three scenarios. I guess you could have had five, 12 but you selected three. So we're very curious about this. Of course, they're just scenarios. This is what your trends, the indicators you choose uh, suggested, but there could be other ways. But I think it's very interesting and very courageous that someone started to look into possible scenarios for the future. So, well, 
I think the two questions that anybody would like to hear the answer to is basically, can you illustrate the three scenarios and what type of multilateralist cooperation underpins each? Because there must be some sort of, uh, you know, transformation and variations. So let's dive in. These are the two questions and maybe you can just share with us the scenarios one by one. Okay. First of all, I will start with my scenario. In 2050, the world will be witnessing a surge of cooperation. So there will be open access technology and cooperative geopolitics to ensure proper cooperative measures among states. The first change that I've been tackling would be the border control between states. In regard to this trajectory, the world will experience a shift in security measures by utilizing simplified procedures for mobilities, border control, migration, and unified visas will be changed to foster coherence and increase partnerships. For example, Latin American and African countries will adopt unified visa systems with extensive security measures to make the visa process seamless and encourage tourism, of course. Another aspect that will experience an increase in policy-making strategies and coalitions is climate change mitigation. Developed countries will provide like incentives to further uh, support deeply impacted countries by climate change. For example, access to technology would allow further advancement in like food security by utilizing advanced technologies. Thus, governments will collaborate with like scientists from around the world to achieve uh, low carbon food production and increase the usage of local food companies. Moreover, democracy and increasing cooperation with international and regional organizations will be highly relevant in the multipolar world. So this is the scenario that I crafted. But regarding what type of multilateral cooperation underpins my scenario is that basically the United Nations would be the main organization in moderating international relations worldwide. So moreover, there will be an increase in regional organizations that cater to specific political goals, but still the United Nations would be the moderator of all these organizations. Due to potential climate change, terrorism, and nuclear threats, states will have to collaborate and use technology to ensure their survival in the globalized world. Also, there will be an emphasis on the importance of multilateralism, as we're doing today, by the international community, such as the United Nations and the European Union. That's basically what my scenario mostly entails. Okay, so here we are in 2050 with a scenario that sounds, I don't want to use the word optimistic, but it's a scenario that basically mm. builds on what we have in the current global order. It maintains the, uh, a global organization that mediates at the center, but in which there is a clear surge of cooperation, as you said in yes. the beginning. So if there is a label on this scenario, it would be scenario one, surge mm. in global cooperation. Well, thank you for sharing. So I wonder about scenario two. So the scenario two, when we originally wrote it, it was uncooperative shares. In this scenario, states will have come together to address climate change with tech sharing, and they will turn to renewable energy and there will be more smart cities. Some states will have like, really advanced in like, the way they use technology to combat climate change. However, other states will be left behind like in Africa, some states in Latin America, states where there's not as much development or they don't have or they're not really using a lot of their resources. They will be left behind and there will be um, disparities between the poorer and richer countries. There will be millions of climate refugees and migrants. And with that, there will be like anti-refugee sentiment, like we see now, but more so. Uh, we'll see that states become more protectionist with closed borders 
and they will use AI and new technology to surveil on not only their citizens, but also to curtail the migrants by using AI and other technologies to kind of like know when a large group of people is coming and trying to stop them from entering their borders. Uh, we will also see that in a positive light, though, humanitarian um, and non-governmental organizations will have more work, not in a good way, but will also use the technology to provide the aid that people need. For example, like we'll see how technology can be used to keep track of the ships and boats in the Mediterranean Sea to save migrants. So then when we look at the kind of cooperative system in this context, we will have the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It will still exist only because climate change is still a, a big part of our lives. The UN will still also exist, but will serve only as a place for dialogue, a shell of what it is today. And one of the main things that they will focus on is AI governance and the new technologies only because autonomous weapons will be like something that needs to be addressed. And that's where the dialogue will be had in the UN, but everything else would not be, the decisions would not be made at the UN. Uh, we'll see that the last major decision made at the UN also will be uh, how to recognize other refugees so they will kind of get the help from the UNHCR and other um, UN organizations, but that will be like the last decision made at the UN. And then in this scenario, most of the cooperation will occur at regional level. So we'll see more of regional organizations taking the biggest steps, taking the biggest decisions, only because they addressed the problems that are affecting their regions. Tensions will still exist, of course, because states that participate in regional organizations, they have to, these conflicting interests, of course, and they will still need to discuss cross-border movement, trade, resource sharing, terrorism, etc. So, and not every country agrees on that, but they will still work together in the region to address those things. In areas of low state involvement, we'll also see that non-state actors will take a large part in making decisions for their communities because as people, maybe they've lost trust in their state government, so they start focusing on non-state actors to provide those resources or help them in the way that governments were supposed to be doing. We'll also see tech companies take a large part in decision-making only because they know the technology that's being created and they know how to use it. They know how, like, what can happen if we don't use the technology correctly. So we'll need to be really working with them to kind of keep the world from blowing up. And we'll, <laughs> and we'll see that uh, decision-making will be like where there's big tech companies. So like they'll become the hub of decision-making. Also in this scenario, I thought like BRICS will have become a very large organization that makes decisions only because as we saw like a few months ago, it was an increase in the number of members. They are thinking of coming up with a currency that rivals the dollar, all these things. In this scenario, I think BRICS will become a large decision maker. So this scenario is interesting because if we have to put a label on it, it would be, you said, this is the scenario, uncooperative scenario. Um, it's a scenario, it's quite um, possible in terms of future thinking. What makes it different from scenario one is that there is no surge in international cooperation. So, and there is also this use of AI as a negative protective surveillance tool to serve a sort of uh, 
policy of retracting within state borders and protecting these borders against migration. But as you said, there will be this huge population of climate migrants and inequalities will increase and therefore people will tend to migrate. And so you're looking at a scenario in which the UN is no longer a decision-making place at the center of multilateralism with the surge of power for regional organizations and possibly corporations and the BRICS. So that is a scenario that um, sit side by side with the scenario with the surge of cooperation. And I guess what I wanted to highlight is that cooperation is a key in the, the, because it makes the difference between these two scenarios. It's quite interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And so scenario number three, I wonder... In 2050, I imagine there to be very strong anti-globalist sentiment, which means that there is an inward-looking nationalism worldwide. This would be kind of visible in all kinds of resistances against globalization, economic, cultural, etc. We will probably see the dismantling of the global trade system's legitimacy with the WTO's dispute settlement mechanisms no longer being effective or even existing. International institutions of finance like the IMF will see people leaving it behind and building other systems of international financial cooperation that make more sense for their context, regional or market. Key organizations like the UNESCO, the International Criminal Court uh, and the European Union are already kind of beginning to see important member states leaving. And this would probably reach a bit of a pinnacle in the next 30 years where these institutions, which we see as the height of good cooperation and having shared values and doing good work, will start to see very strong member states leave it behind and they will lose all their importance and effectiveness, which would mean that essentially any new international agreement would be very, very difficult to exist. And therefore, there will be no real impetus for any supranational body like the UN to exist There's also mounting backlash against social and cultural globalization, evident in anti-immigrant rhetoric, protests against tourism, and concerns about the dilution of local cultures in a globalized world. I also don't think regional cooperation will work anymore. There is just so much unresolved tension and suspicion, even within regional blocs, that this environment marked with insecurity will only become more strengthened. Advanced technologies, including tactile nuclear weaponry, And precise long-range launchers, for example, will becoming more common and increasingly integrated within the military capacities of countries and nation-states. Which also means that pursuits for national interest will lead to a higher number of espionage cases. Maybe we'll have even more interesting uh, spyware and stories that surround them. And just the use of very sophisticated artificial intelligence for surveillance. Which means that the risk of internationalized conflict becomes much higher. This also means that the sharing of technology for good governments, the provision of quality education, healthcare services across borders has also been hindered. Standardized testing, academic benchmarks, tech-driven educational reforms, which I have particular interest in as currently being developed by the UNESCO, the World Bank and the OECD, all of those systems of trying to improve our educational systems across the world and reach high-quality benchmarks will all start to dissolve. In healthcare, for example, obstacles to pandemic preparedness will persist. The discussions surrounding waiving intellectual property rights for vaccine development across the world have all been stalled by 2050, and the idea of us as a global community fighting potential future pandemics will also be very difficult to actually establish, which means that in terms of multilateral systems underpinning this scenario, global governance will no longer be the prerogative of nation-states and international organizations run by different governments, civil society organizations, NGOs, um, high net worth individuals, funding agencies, multilateral corporations, 
will all enhance their strength and power and influence and spheres of influence in this particular scenario in the next 30 years. NGOs uh, will expand their influence through advocacy, mass protests, unionization, policy recommendations, and strategic litigation. And enterprises like big businesses will engage in corporate social responsibility and wealthy individuals and agencies contribute philanthropically to provide essential services that governments and international organizations cannot or will not deliver. That already happens, but I think in the next 30 years, their importance in actually service delivery and actually bringing people's voices to the forefront and making sure that policy is actually in tandem with what people need and want and what they aspire for, like non-state actors will become extremely crucial in this scenario because governments will no longer want to cooperate with each other. The only thing that I'm worried about in this situation, even though NGOs and civil society will have good work to do, is that with the rise of right-wing populism and the rise of mass media, which often attacks human rights defenders, which often attacks people who want to do the job that the governments are failing to do, the spread of misinformation, the spread of propaganda also raises very important questions of effectiveness, of legitimacy in a world that's still largely state-centric, even though states are refusing to cooperate and become a global community. So with all of those concerns, I think this last scenario is one that we really want to avoid at all costs. Yeah, it sounds like a scenario <laughs> to avoid. However, however negative, this scenario still contains this lesson, which is when there's no cooperation. This would be the scenario, no cooperation. You said there's no cooperation and therefore there is insecurity and heightened tensions with the technology that is no longer a force for good and therefore AI applications that are especially used in the military field, in the surveillance field. This will increase the likelihood of conflict risk, of course, and misinformation. So all of that combined with rhetoric spreading and um, and affecting the the equilibrium in the in the civil society and also state state role so here we are in 2050 with three scenarios that are possible in my opinion but that of course when we go into the future it's just a matter of opinions however you have based your scenario building on actual trends and you have done serious analysis so as you said so you need these scenarios are possible. We may be facing any combination of these three in variable mix by 2050. Yeah, quite a place to be 2050. So let's go back here in 2023, which with all the crisis we're facing, feels like a safer place now. So the question is coming to my brain is, I feel happy to come back to 2023 from the place you just took me in 2050, except perhaps in Karim's scenario where I was feeling relaxed. I was feeling that we all see the same thing, that we come together as a community, notwithstanding our differences, because we have clear shared values and clear objectives. But the other two made me quite uncomfortable. So I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to be a global citizen in 2023. But then the question comes to me very strongly. What are the transformations that I require now in 2023 so that we can create new paths towards international order that would be anchored in justice, equality, and also sustainability? What do we need to transform mm -hmm. now in 2003 to have a safer, better 2050 for everyone? Not to be a downer, but I feel like the present also looks quite disconcerting in many ways. 
And so while we think that how the trends function, it might actually get way worse 30 years later and we need to take steps right now, the steps we take right now need to be effective and targeted and incisive in terms of what really our pain points are. Quoting slightly from the Strategic Monitor from 2019-2020 by the Hague Center for Strategic Studies, the world is generally a more insecure place than it has been in the last few years. Over the years, there has been a notable increase in the share of the European populist vote, rising about 70% in the last two decades. Trends pertaining to inclusivity, polarization, all of these things portray predominantly negative trajectories. And trust in democracy um, has declined, which is followed by a general increase in global military expenditure and indicators such as financial contentment, informational connectivity and the volume of international exchange have all experienced declines. All of this has led to generally the possibility of active conflicts all over the world, especially intrastate conflicts with several internationalized dimensions. The possibility has just increased. In the present, we are seeing conflict already, but the cultures that we are establishing now will lead to all of those things becoming normalized potentially in the future, which basically means that the world no longer is governed by responsible leaders, effective diplomacy, and resilient institutions. Instead, what we are forced to deal with are populism, nationalism, and anti-globalism. And so I think the transformation we need right now is to establish a trust in institutions but also make countries realize and their constituents realize that they actually have stake in these institutions, that there is actually something positive to be gained by being a part of a larger supranational system. Countries really have more in common in terms of goals and requirements and aspirations and needs than they potentially realize and are often swayed by politics, which is fairly unhelpful, often extremely violent. So my idea of what we need currently to transform is to look at what our pain points are, look at what is causing this decline in democracy, what is causing this decline in the trust in institutions, and just making the world more severely insecure. Yeah, I highly agree with what Sohini just said, but what I focus on is one simple issue. We should focus on the underlying issues first in order to achieve justice, equality, and sustainability. So currently, a lot of states, small states specifically, they are feeling overpowered and they're feeling suspicious of the international order right now, which I highly agree. So this would actually lead and is actually currently leading the disintegration of international organizations. In my scenario, I was actually focusing on like how we should collaborate more between states and between international organizations and states. Like I have high hopes on international organizations. But what is currently happening right now in this world we're realizing that small states do not have the voice to talk about their own problems. There's a saying in English, they say that it takes to tango. I think that the world should collaborate, even big countries, they have high stakes. But we should always collaborate with small states because they're the ones who are mostly impacted by the problems around the world, especially climate change. So yeah, in order for us to create new paths, we should provide an effective voice to every state, no matter how small or big it is. I know this is a very hard task to do, but that's the only way to have a scenario one future. Maybe this can be done by providing, the, for example, the General Assembly more power in decision making instead of the Security Council only. So yeah, this is what I'm mostly focused on. And for me, in my opinion, I think countries or they need to focus more on building up regional institutions first, only because I think it's less difficult to use the word. It's 
not easy, but it's less difficult making decisions at the regional level because there's less voices to contend with than the international level. And once countries have been able to agree in the regional level what is important to them, how does justice look like, how does equality look like, what does sustainability mean for them in the region, and then maybe they can come up to the international level where they can try to come up with solutions for the whole world. Because as of now, things are not working out. Even with just climate change itself, like where we know the effects of climate change, what will happen if we don't act now. Some states don't really want to make decisions at all. And some want to make decisions because they know they'll be affected, but there's no agreement. And so focusing on the regional level uh, first might help because you as a region or as states in a certain area agree on what needs to be done, how you can help yourselves before you come and get the whole world to act on them. And then another thing, I think civil society needs to be given a place at the decision-making tables. We always hear that civil society is important. We, when there are meetings, they bring civil society to hear their voices and their opinions and everything. But after that, they leave the room and decisions are made anyway. And sometimes they don't even consider what the civil society has said. So I think they need to be at the table. They need to be not only voicing their opinions, but also helping make decisions. That's when we will see some changes where the whole world agrees. And I just like, oh, the decision was made in Geneva at the UN, but it doesn't apply to us. When civil society is present, people representing regular people at the grassroots level, then when the decisions are made, like, oh, someone was in the room to vote on this, who represents us? And so I think that those are the two transformations that we really need. Well, thank you for sharing. I think um, these reflections you shared just now are as important and as heavy in the episode as the three scenarios, because there you can see really where we could improve and how this improvement may actually affect the future scenarios or in a couple of cases actually avoid these scenarios actually occur altogether. Also, I go back to your reflection, Sohini, on, you know, very sobering reflection where we, we are now in 23, when I said, I feel better in 23. And then you said, well, think twice, because actually it's not a very reassuring landscape. And I would tend to agree with you. Actually, I don't tend, I do agree with you. And then the question came to my mind when I was listening to those observations on this sort of, um, you know, dimmer reality we're living now. What are your hopes? Uh, here you are, uh, much younger than I am, looking at uh, international affairs, international relations. This is your field of research. Probably, I assume, that is also where you want to put your professional talents and energy in the future. So, yeah, my question may seem a little bit dumb, but I think it's important to share also what are the hopes that keep you going, that keep you wanting to be involved and change things? I guess I will go first. Personally, I have little faith in the future. I think there are multiple conflicts around the world that, and some have like spent decades with them, or we haven't found a solution for them. It makes me have faith in the future. And I question a lot, what does it mean for us to promote human rights when only seems that some people benefit from human rights and not others? Why do we care about crises and victims, like some more than others? And why do we condone like, and support violence done by one group as they are defending themselves, but when others do it, it's just violence and senseless violence. That's how we view it. And so it just makes me really have just a little bit of faith in the future. 
I think there's so many contradictions in the international community that we need to address. However, I think that when I see people around the world, especially the youth, really coming together, acting, protesting, calling out their governments and really challenging the decisions that the governments are doing, it gives me hope. And that's all I'm living off of right now. Hope is what I have because without hope, everything just seems bleak. And so the three things I hope for, I hope the leaders attentively heed the voices of their constituents and refrain from decisions made only by political motivations. I aspire to see a collective recognition of the intrinsic worth of human rights to of everyone and the protection of individual rights for everyone. And I also hope that we can establish a system that is characterized in genuine equity, not just merely like in rhetoric, but also like through tangible and ethical implementation. I think what gives me hope is the fact that where we are today, even though things look quite disappointing in some cases, they're also way better than where we were maybe 30 years ago in certain contexts, right? So the window of what we are able to consider appropriate, possible, feasible, good, efficient policy continues to shift. What might be considered radical right now will possibly be correct policy voted upon by members of the world community as what they want and aspire for 30 years from now. Just like things that we think are common, correct and necessary now were considered either absolutely impossible to be considered within international politics or any kind of policymaking or just not given much heed to. Uh, maybe as a gender student, for example, the idea that the kind of work that we're currently doing in anti-racist work or intersectional feminist uh, advocacy work, lots of things were considered super radical, impossible to touch, just irrelevant to society 30 years ago. And they are very crucial and centered in, in the work that we do, do today. And the hope that I have for the future is that we will continue to move this window of possibility to include greater, like more relevant requirements as we move ahead. I agree with the hopes of both Sumfor and Sohini. I personally hope that the world leaders would put cooperation and the welfare of all people ahead of national interests. I look forward to seeing leaders who are devoted to solving urgent global concerns, including poverty, violence, and climate change, as well as who collaborate to bolster and reform these international organizations to tackle these problems in the first place. So in this vision, states collaborate to discover long-lasting solutions to the most urgent uh, global issues. This shared duty would be the hallmark of what the international order would be. I hope the current situation in the Middle East would show the world that we really need cooperation to solve conflicts. And I highly agree with what Symphor has said. The tensions between nations over the simple definition of human integrity raises a concern to me. This is one of the biggest concerns that I have. Why are we debating ceasefire? How will we be able to address world problems such as environmental insecurity and socioeconomic problems if the right to live is being debated? So I have faith only in the civil society actors and the people on the ground, but I do not have faith on the states themselves after what I'm seeing right now. If you asked me this question like a few weeks ago, I would have had a different answer. But today, I don't have faith with what's happening because it's showing the power imbalance in the world. This is why I've said in the previous, um, my previous opinions, my previous scenario that all states should be given equal voice because in the end, we're all humans. We all breathe the same air. I hope that the states are influenced by these small voices because they are the ones who are on the ground. Thank you for sharing. I think these are very powerful thoughts. And I, I've heard this before from especially youth representatives around the world. 
So there is a congruence on these hopes. And I think the word is out there for leaders and future leaders, especially future leaders. The focus on the global is what people hope for in the future. Without solving the global, we cannot solve many of the locals. And there is this regional part of what of how we do multilateralism that is clearly evolving, that is clearly gaining mass, depth and density. That is also something that emerges quite clearly from both your scenarios and the reflections. So as we wrap up this episode, I would like to go around the table once again and maybe hear in one sentence you know, after this research experience, because if we zoom out now, out from the scenarios, out of the research product, the report you, re- you wrote together, it was an experience in itself to go into this kind of shift from the future of multilateralism to the multilateralism we need in the future. So if it is one sentence, one idea that you want to leave with our audience so that they have a takeaway from each of you, what would that be? I think for me is don't be afraid to question things. The only way we can change the current system, the only way we can solve the problems, the issues that we have right now is by questioning them, understanding what's going on, and then coming up with a better system where we can address all these issues. The future is not very far away. And what we do, and this might seem obvious and intuitive, but really what we do today has profound impact on the future. Just like the fact that Vanuatu is already underwater and now we're probably going to have a digital economy in a digital country. But also at the same time, right now we have set in motion fantastic movements and policy agendas on the table that can change the world for the better. So the future is not far away and what we do, bad or good, can have profound impact. So we must make our choices wisely. My message to the world is very simple. Empower the voiceless. So this is uh, my message. So by the voiceless, I don't only mean in terms of states. I mean also in terms of the people around you, from the community level to the government, to the national level and the international level. So by that, I mean like give small states a voice. This is a message to the UN and the B5. I I hope they'll hear it. And uh, actually give voice to the people who do not have a voice within the country. Well, thank you so much, really. Simfora, Karim, Sohini, it was a great pleasure to have you here on the episode. Thank you for taking the time, and it was a pleasure to have you on the next page. Thank Thank you. you. Likewise, thank you for having us. Thank you.